What's up, everyone? Thanks for tuning in. Asian Bitches Done Under, a podcast about sharing information and perspectives from the Asian diasporas in society and culture. We encourage you to subscribe to our show via Apple, Google, or Spotify. If you have enjoyed our episodes, please support us by giving us a five star rating and get your friends on board to listen to us. Finally, we would love you to support this podcast by donating to our Buy Me a Coffee program. Your wonderful support and donations will help us to continue creating the platform for diversity and inclusivity. Make sure you check out the episode show notes for any collaborations we're working with to promote. Thanks again, and we hope you will enjoy today's episode. Today we would like to uh, welcome Miss Kate Liu, who is not only a doctor of physical therapy, a writer, and the amazing founder of Subtle Asian Baking, with an incredible global community of over 300k followers across all the social media. So, um, all the way from Seattle, USA, let's welcome you, yeah, Kate. Yay. Yay! We're so Hi. happy to have our first international guest. <laughs> yeah. So, um, would you like uh, to start to tell us about a little bit about maybe not a little bit, you know, uh, we would like you to tell us a lot about your <laughs> background, your experience, and perhaps your qualifications as well. Sure. Um, thank. First of all, thanks so much for having me. I think this is the first like non-US podcast I'm on, but I was on one where um, the podcaster was in Hong Kong, <laughs> so the not non-Asian Asia and non-America podcast. <laughs> We're the first Australian, isn't it? We're the first. Yeah, the yeah. first Australian. Thank you so much, Helen and Jess, for having me. So my name is Kat Liu, and I am uh, formerly a doctor of physical therapy for 13 years. Mm-hmm. Um, also, formerly a New Yorker for almost over 30 years and now I've moved to the Seattle Washington area so from the east coast all the way to the west coast um during COVID I I feel like a lot of people found themselves right they finally had some time to reflect they were at home a lot they're missing you know they're nostalgic about things that comfort them they don't see their families right I think during 2020 was where I had a revelation about my life um but I didn't switch from you know Right now, I'm, I'm completely someone who's working from home, an author, a baker, and a content uh, media strategist, um, and not a physical therapist anymore. But I think 2020 was when I, I had a realization about myself. Mm-hmm. And that was when a lot of the things started, right? Um, I was working from home, and then I was treating um, students at home, and I was feeling a little bit burned out because I was bummed about the world already. And then I always have to keep a happy face on to keep my students and my patients happy too, right? So after that, I felt like, you know what, I'm I'm feeling a lot of burnout. So what's bringing me joy, right? So thinking about all the great foods that I had in Asia, right? Mm-hmm. We, we were back from a trip, um, February 2020. We went to Tokyo when COVID just started. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you remember that cruise ship off of Japan where the people were quarantined very early on. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So then we came back. We were scared. We didn't know, like, you know, the world would change all of a sudden. March 2020, I'm sure it happened for everyone around the world, right? Mm. And then, you know, we were stuck at home and I was always thinking about those delicious foods that I had in Japan. I wanted to bake them at home, but I didn't really know how to like make, you know, the best Japanese cheesecake or a wonderful piece of mochi in the microwave or like the milk bread. And I was looking online and I wanted to ask other bakers who want to bake this way too, right? But there wasn't really a collective space like, you know, what I was looking for. There were a lot of random scattered websites, right? Mm-hmm. So I thought maybe it's time to form this group. Now I didn't think that, you know, this group would become so huge. Uh, so I like, you know, one day in May 2020, spur of the moment, I said, let's just start like a subtle Asian baking group because there's subtle Asian dating, there's subtle Asian traits, there's subtle yeah, Asian yeah. cooking. Right? I'm sure you're on one of these yeah. groups, right? Yeah, totally. There, there's no subtle Asian baking yet. So I was like, let's mm. let's go with that, start it, see how it goes. You know, a lot, with a lot of like things that you start, you don't know if it's going to take off. This one actually did kind of blow up very quickly you know started with a hundred of my closest friends became like a few thousand after just mere weeks and by december 2020 it was even featured on eater.com which is this huge like u.s national um food media source and so after that you know now we have like you said um across all social media over 300,000 members and followers and it's just been phenomenal the growth and we're just so happy to be here and ha- having found it, you know, subtle Asian baking and now baking the Asian way and talking to you all about it. That's amazing. I was going to ask you, what's your family background? Yeah, so um, my dad is half Chinese and he's half uh, Vietnamese. Mm-hmm. And he was born in Hanoi, Vietnam, he went to Belgium very early on in his life. And then he immigrated to Montreal, Canada. And from there, he met my mom, who is from Hong Kong. So she's Chinese, um, Cantonese Chinese, and Toy Sun. And then they met, they had me. So this is the early 80s. They left Montreal, and my dad drove all the way down with a map. So we didn't have, you know, Google Maps. We didn't have MapQuest back then. And then he drove all the way down to Brooklyn, and they never looked back. And, you know, I was uh, raised in Brooklyn for all of my life. So I'm half Chinese, half uh, Vietnamese. Wow, that's an amazing story. Your family, your your parents, like flying from you know moving from Asia and then to Europe and then you know all places yeah. around the globe. That's just you know the stories that we often hear about a lot of earlier Asians, earlier Asian diasporas who you know move across the world. Um, what's the what, what's your childhood like? My childhood, um, you know, today I was thinking about my childhood and I, I feel like I don't remember much of it. Right? Sometimes it's been such a blur when you, when you're alive for so long, you know, I'm close to 40, I'm 38 this year. And like, I'm trying to think back, you know, um, I, I was a middle child, but um, my older sister lived in, Mon- she stayed in Montreal when my mom and my dad came to um, Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And then later on, they had my younger sister who's five years older. So I was kind of raised like a firstborn. Mm-hmm. So I um, had had a bit of a, a managerial type A aggressive, you know, older child syndrome, kind of a bit of a bully to my little sister. Um, but then like, you know, at the same time in America, you know how we have the, the Asian model minority. Mm-hmm. So like at home, mm-hmm. I'll be outspoken. And then, you know, I'm 
I'm an extroverted introvert or the other way around. I'm an introverted extrovert. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so like outside, I, I try not to be as outspoken, you know, so I'm having like a dual personality, like growing up, I feel. Mm -hmm. So you're trying to be like, you, you do everything that you do at home. You help your parents with like all of their phone calls because their English is not yeah. as good or they're more shy about it. Right. And you do like all the chores for them and things like that but then like at school you're more of a shyer person than because you feel your English is not as good as your mm -hmm. your peers right because your English for me is a third language so it's always been a struggle up until junior high school for me mm -hmm. um I guess growing up I would say I was 75% quite a happy child you know as long as I was fed I, I could play with my Barbies and, and things like that and then the other 25% was you know searching for myself finding out who I am, why I'm different from, you know, a lot of my peers. I was the only Asian girl in my elementary school up until mm -hmm. fifth grade. Like there was no other elementary school in my grade year, right? So when we graduated, I was the only Asian girl out of like hundreds of, of children who were graduating of, fifth grade. Which part of Brooklyn were you at, Cap? Coney Island, South oh, okay. Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like the deepest part of Brooklyn where, you know, that's that, um, famous amusement park is and the Nathan's yeah. hot dogs mm. like that was my backyard mm, wow mm. you'll yeah, be more so familiar with it with it just because you've been to New York I haven't been to New York you'll just yeah. love New York yeah, yeah. I'm like for most of my life Kat, I've wanted to move to New York <laughs> <laughs> I mean oh. I think it's a good time now I think the prices have gone down a little bit so. mm. and what, I'm curious to know Kat what made you study physical therapy Mm. Uh, <laughs> this is a funny question because, you know, uh, I don't want to stereotype Asians, but Asian mm. Asian parents, like you know, growing up, they tell you, you know, be in finance, you know, or, <laughs> yeah. or find find a good husband, be be an engineer or a doctor. I think yeah. they wanted me to be a medical doctor, but I have a, a crazy fear of blood, so I can't really draw blood and give needles and do surgeries i'm definitely afraid of it like my own blood is okay but if i see other people bleed it's like ooh. um so my mom ha always had knee problems and back problems she went to physical therapy in chinatown of new york city and she read up about it and she thought hey why not try this you know you don't you won't see a lot of blood you know mm -hmm. be a physical therapist and then i'm looking at her i was like what is physical therapy right <laughs> It's like I've I've only been to it like maybe once as a child after I sprained my ankle. I don't really remember it that much. Um, so I did my own research. Again, this was earlier on. Like you know, you had Google already and, and things like that. So I did my research and I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. You know, you exercise with people, you get them better, you get to help people, right? Mm -hmm. And it would please my parents. I really wanted to go into um, making video games or writing. Mm -hmm. You know, being mm -hmm. more of a creative. Yeah. which I am now, which is yeah. very ironic because I spent like all those years becoming a doctor of physical therapy and now, you know, moving away from that academic scientific career into a more like um, creative mm -hmm. everyday, kind of more free. I feel like you could be, you could do more things according to you because yeah. like you could be creative as a physical therapist, but you're still treating a human body. Mm. there's not so much that you can deviate from it because if you want to overstretch someone you could hurt them right <laughs> things yeah. like that um so yeah it's, it's quite an I ironic thing um so I didn't really choose it for myself I did love it I do still love it you know it's funny it's like um how people say you know 
you you don't want an arranged marriage and then you get into an arranged marriage and you're like oh it's a great marriage <laughs> so <laughs> this is this was an arranged career path for me and it was a great career path you know it gave me a lot of financial stability which i'm very um, grateful for mm. uh, i understand that um with your creativity you've de- you've done a bit of writing as well uh could you tell us about that yeah, so right before I graduated as a physical therapist, so now we're talking about maybe around 2008, 2009, mm-hmm. I was writing a draft of um, a romantic comedy featuring Asian American characters. So it was all about, you know, love and young adults, you know, falling in love for the first time. And all the characters were Asian American. And I got as far as to the point of getting a literary agent mm-hmm. who was quite famous back then, that literary agency. We even signed a contract, which was so amazing for me. I was always mm-hmm. dreamed of, you know, writing books and publishing books. I was like, I'm going to be the next Judy Bloom. I'm so happy. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, our contract got canceled um, due to personal matters that that she had to deal with. And then I had a writing mentor who looked at my draft and said, you know, it's good, but you know, these are Asian American characters. You know, Asian culture is not going to be. A, a bestseller. It's not going to sell books for you, cat, right? So maybe whiten these characters. You know, he's trying to hint to me. I didn't take that advice, of course. And, you know, but I gave up on traditional publishing and I self published this book on my own. Went on to sell like 50,000 digital copies on my own. Um, but it's not very profitable because if you're selling on Kindle, on Amazon Kindle back then, you sell it for 99 cents, you get 35 cents. So you can do the math. I didn't make like a million bucks, right? Um, I saw that, you know, being a self-published author was a lot of work. You have to do all the marketing yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, It wasn't profitable. It was much better to listen to my parents and, you know, go with my stable career as a physical therapist. I gave up on that dream. I wrote on this side, but I never, you know, pursued it as much. Um, But that was my little writing, (laughs) my little adventure into writing back then. Mm, I think you can still write. I feel like there's there's a trend in the last two, three years that, the Asian diasporas in Western countries, you know, we're expanding out the, our creativity side, especially in writing, and there's more books are uh, publishing. There's, there was one question that I was going to ask you when I hear about your, um, your, you uh, mentioning your mentor. Was your mentor white? Yes, <laughs> white, white male. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he meant, he didn't mean bad, you know, I, I don't mm. think he meant like, you know, he wasn't being racist. He was just telling me the trends back then, you know, and it was true. Mm. You didn't really see um, crazy rich Asians wasn't going to come out until years later. I believe mm. we had we had the wuxia things. We had like, you know, House of Flying Daggers. We had um, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. But like, you know, Disney films, we only had Mulan for mm-hmm. the longest. Right. And then books, I don't really remember many of them like featuring Asian Americans only um, from Joy Luck Club until the next books. Like it's not like now where it's more prominent. Like you have Crying in H Mart, you know, written by an Asian American. You have like all these cookbooks written by by, um, AAPI authors. And so the timing was just off for me. And unfortunately, right now, it's very hard for me to write romance again. Because now I'm married. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm realistic. When I was much younger. <laughs> you, know, you have 
have I love that. You have more fantasies when you were younger in your your yeah. 20s, right? And like that was before I was dating. So I could write about like all these romantic things and like everything was about love. And now it's like, ooh, what about tonight's dinner? <laughs> what about <Yeah>. lunch? <laughs> what about my snoring husband? <laughs> so I, I'm like, I'm not sure I could go and keep writing like any more romantic comedies, maybe like um I'll try. I have some, some ideas. Like they're all about Asian American bakers, right? But I think right now, I think my my forte might be cookbook writing. Mm -hmm. I see. Well, let's talk about baking. Um, essentially, subtle Asian baking. We want to focus on everything about food. What's your no no fail dish? What's like? I want to start with the dish that you always do, the baking item that you do, that you you will always be, you know, you will come out perfect, you know, because baking is such a chemistry yeah. um, experiment sometimes, and unless that you do it over and over again, and what what would be the, something that you do that you always it will come out perfect? Right now, I would have to say um, any of the milk breads that I've been making. And they're quite, they're quite viral and famous right now on uh, TikTok and Instagram. They're very colorful. They have different flavors, you know, like butterfly pea flour, black sesame, um, matcha pandan ube. The bread has been a foolproof <clears throat> recipe right now. Mm -hmm. oh, wow. I think it's because, um, you know, once you get bread, it is, um, baking is all about a ratio, right? So when, when you have bread, it's always three to five. So you have um, three the ratio of three of liquid to five flour bread flour when you have good bread flour and active yeast and then you have a good recipe and then you know exactly when to stop kneading the dough and how much it needs to rise how much time it needs to rest um how to shape it perfectly and then if all if your oven has a great proof function you know most of the times like i would say 95 percent of the times my bread has come out like consistently perfect for the last year Awesome. So that would be my answer. Oh, wow. Yeah, I think milk bread has been quite popular the last few years. I mean, apart from um, like, what, white people, they're making sourdough. <laughs> 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 yeah, I, I know that milk bread has been quite popular in Taiwan. And I think it started in like Hokkaido, Japan. The very, you know, the first recipe or something is coming out from Japan. And we always like that kind of the soft, texture compared to the more dense European bread. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And there's sub it's subtly sweet. So it's yeah. not like, you know, it's not very sweet. And like every time my mom eats it, she's like, mm, it's not too sweet. And she loves it, you know. And also there's, a, I feel there's a chew to it yeah. with milk bread. It's yeah. like feathery and tender and stays soft for like many days versus like when you have like um, a, a white bread, it's usually more crummy, I feel. Mm. Yeah. Like even the shape of it, it just feels a little bit different. Um, mm. That's how I feel. <laughs> and what's your most challenging dish so far, Kat? Um, so I've always taken a lot of time to perfect the Japanese cheesecake, I would have to say, like the chiffon cakes, the mm. Japanese cheesecakes, and then also a roll cake. You know, just try to roll it perfectly, the Swiss roll cake. That's always mm. been a problem for me because mm. you always have to 
um, put just the right amount of cream. You uh-huh. put too much, it all squishes out and you can't uh-huh. roll it perfectly. Mm-hmm. If the roll is not like warm or it's too cold, it doesn't, it becomes wrinkly. It doesn't roll nicely. Um, so, so anything like with a chiffon or like um, whipping meringue, that those are really hard mm. to do. But I do love making my Japanese cheesecakes. The other thing that I'm always trying to perfect, and sometimes I, I get scared of making it, is, of course, the macarons, like mm-hmm. the French macaron style. Yeah, you know? yeah. Just something different with the humidity would change the way your macaron comes out. You know, if you don't rest it long enough, it won't develop feet. Or, you know, if your temperature is too hot, then it burns the top or it, it cracks and, and things like yeah. that. So, yeah. So anything with whipping egg whites and, and uh, macarons. Yeah. Speaking of macarons, we went to one of the workshops years ago at, uh, was it Newtown? Do you guys remember? <laughs> to the macaron. Oh, yes. I think that's the only time we made the perfect macaron because we had it's someone. It's so hard. It was yeah. so hard. Someone had to, you know, instruct us and tell us, oh, don't like pipe it. You know, there's a certain type of method of piping that has to come get it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, what are you like when you're baking or cooking do you measure everything perfectly or are you freestyle because i feel like as an asian um i grew up looking at our mom cooking and, and it's very freestyle us, yeah, it's very freestyle she never tells us how to measure and when we ask her she's just like oh that much that much and we're like how much yeah, yeah she didn't yeah <laughs> yeah with, with cooking, I barely ever measure unless I'm using a completely new recipe. So let's mm. say someone gave me a mochiko chicken recipe, then yes, I would I would follow their measurements. But on the second go around, I'd add more stuff. Like if it asks for soy sauce, then I'll add more mirin. Mm. I'll probably add more honey or things like that. Um, but with baking, I feel you really need to follow the recipe very specifically because, again, mm. it's all about ratios. Like mm. even when you're making a cookie, if you add a little bit too much butter versus yeah. the sugar versus the flour, you get a f- much flatter cookie mm-hmm. that spreads a lot more and that's oilier. So you do want to follow a recipe, one that you've perfected or tested and tried and that you love. Mm-hmm. You know, and then afterwards you can change it up a little bit. Like let's say yeah. I have my perfect milk bread recipe already, my super easy milk bread. Right. Then I can change up the um, the liquid instead of using milk. I could use blended cream corn to make the cream corn milk bread. Mm. Right. Or I could take away a little bit of flour and add in black sesame powder and make a black sesame milk bread. Same with my um, Japanese cheesecakes. Right. Once you have the recipe down packed, you've made it a few times, you know exactly what the batter needs to look like before you bake it. Mm-hmm. Then you could change up little things. So instead of using vanilla extract, you can add your ube extract to make a purple ube Japanese cheesecake, things like that. So cooking, like whatever, you know, I do it by taste. I do it by eyeball. But baking, mm. I'm, I'm very meticulous in particular mm. with the recipes. Wow. Mm. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah, that makes totally sense. Yeah. So what's your go to comfort food? <sighs> this is funny because it's not Asian. I do love pasta. <laughs> <laughs> who doesn't yeah. i do love pasta i mean yesterday i just made um for dinner i made a panko coated um chicken parmesan mm. right. Yum. sometimes when you want to salt it a little bit i would add some miso uh-huh. right um, uh-huh. but it had a load of mozzarella cheese 
basil and tomato sauce from a can um, from a jar, <laughs> not homemade. Um, but yeah, so I think comforting things would be anything like tomato and and mushrooms and and like a nice bowl of hot pasta. Mm. Mm. Is that what you is that what you eat when you were growing up? Did you have more Asian food at your household, or did you have more like Western food? I definitely had more Asian food. I think every dinner was um, a Cantonese meal that my mom would cook, yeah. or then and and every like Saturdays we would go to a Vietnamese restaurant to mm-hmm. have pho. So mm-hmm. it's always Asian, right? But whenever it was a special occasion, my da- I think this is why I like the comforting Italian food. My dad would take us to like an Italian restaurant in New York City, so that would be like so special because it was so rare. Or like on a Sunday when we're not having dim sum, he would take us to a diner for like an American breakfast, mm-hmm. right? With your with your toast and your sunny side eggs and your <clears throat> sunny side up eggs, and then your um, hot cocoa with with like loads of whipped cream. So that's when you felt like, oh, you know, maybe I'm also American because I'm like eating mm-hmm. all these American foods, right? Um, so yeah, but we did do a lot of the the Chinese with my mom. Um, did a lot of steamed fish for dinner, um, steamed pork, pork ribs, um, rice was at every meal. Sometimes a fried egg too, but not sunny side up because she doesn't know how to make them perfectly sunny side up. <laughs> um, and then I love the I love whenever she goes into New York City Chinatown, she would bring back some um, dishes like Malaysian Chinese uh, chicken or like Malaysian curry and, and things like that. Wow, that sounds really cool. I want to talk about your life uh, in New York and Seattle, um, but specifically, what's what's popular? Like, what's popular uh, baking item-wise in New York and Seattle? Like, for example, in Sydney, I think a lot of food bloggers, a couple of items that would just come up to the, to their mind when we ask about, you know, what's the sweet stuff in Sydney that's popular uh, that has been quite popular last, last few years of black star pastry the strawberry watermelon cake it's like a layer chiffon cake with watermelon um, I think with cream cheese and strawberry and the last two years is like Tokyo Lamington it's like a fusion of uh, Lamington I'm not quite sure if you know Lamington it's like a sponge cake with sandwiched uh, jam in inside and dipped in chocolate sauce and then coated with shredded coconut, coconut. Mm-hmm. yeah so that's a very iconic australian like uh dessert and then i think one of the um a japanese pastry chef he started to combine with a lot of asian like elements with it and make it uh more varieties um what about seattle and new york what comes into your mind when you were like asking for like if we ever go to Seattle where should we visit (laughs) absolutely so um let's start with New York City since I've been a New Yorker way longer I didn't move to to um, Seattle until 2017 so I've only lived here for five years now um may will be five years so New York City let's start with the New York style cheesecake from Junior's Mm. have you heard of that Jess yes no (laughs) Junior's Bakery it's famous it comes in a white an orange striped box. So if you're ever in um, downtown Brooklyn, DeKalb Avenue, or you're in like um, New York City, you have to try the New York style Junior's Cheesecake. It's famous. Mm. 
Wow. So New York style graham cracker crust on the bottom and then a creamy, creamy white cheesecake on top. Unforgettable taste. People actually go on the plane with that cheesecake to bring it back to me. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So that that's one. So two would be um, a Levain cookie. So they're very famous. They're like 160 plus grams each cookie, like the size of a baseball. Wow. Huge, packed with walnuts and packed with chocolate chips. Um, people want to recreate them all the time. I try to recreate them myself using matcha and white chocolate and macadamia mm. nuts. Oh, so yeah. that's another famous one. Uh, if you're not talking about baking, you're talking about ice cream, I have to give a plug to my friend, Christy, who, ha who runs the Chinatown Ice Cream Factory. So all kinds of different um, ice creams with like amazing flavors like pandan and egg tart, right? Um, that's oh in. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> I think I'll fly to New York cream. just for that. <laughs> yeah. So that's in, um, that's in Chinatown, New York. And then um, also New York City, they have a place called, I think, Kiki or Kiki Modern. Now they're doing a lot of Japanese-style cheesecakes and fast cheesecakes. And finally, Double Crispy for their potat egg tarts. So that's in, also in Chinatown. But if, I can't say there's one thing in New York City. There's just so many. You know, there's so many amazing things. Like, I, I didn't even touch on. I know people are going to be mad at me that I didn't touch on it. But I'm just <laughs> listing from the top of my head. <laughs> And um, you're going to be so surprised because it's so hard for me to say what's in Seattle. I actually have to Google it. <laughs> it's been really bad. Everywhere you go in, in Seattle and this Renton area that I live in, you have to drive. And I'm, oh. I'm a good driver, but I hate to drive. I get a lot of anxiety when I drive. So I have to wait till my husband is available to drive me away from our little city here to go into Seattle or going to Bellevue where there's a lot of um, amazing cakes and goodies and things like that. So he suggested, he suggested the Tom Douglas triple coconut cream pie, which is completely, completely amazing. So I think, you know, Google it. I think people have to like reserve it. It's famous. I haven't had it yet, <laughs> but I'm going to go try to get it as soon as I can. Wow. Um, this, the second thing would be um, something that my neighbor always brings back. Uh, my neighbor and my friends have brought back to me from Seattle. Um, it's called the Flower Box. Amazing brioche donuts filled with a lot of different flavors. Sometimes they're savory. Like she would do like a lox cream cheese bagel, um, but in a donut form. <laughs> and then she'll do a creme brulee one, which I'm addicted to. And then all kinds of different flavors like red bean and sweet potato. So that would be the second one I would recommend. And then the third one is uh, something called Hood Famous. They make amazing like ube and coffee lattes and um, ube cheesecakes. Oh, they sound amazing. Wow. <laughs> I'm like, why are we here? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it sounds so amazing. It sounds like there's a lot of um, Asian fusion desserts yeah. mm. you know recently and i'm seeing a lot more asian pastry chefs on tv and out on the food media as well um like i want to link the food to the the culture and our identity you know what do you how do you see you yourself like do you, do you have a sense of belonging through the lens of food and what's the asian representation like in U.S. in regarding to the food media? 
I think right now there's been a revolution. I feel, mm-hmm. I feel there's been um, so much more appreciation for like Asian culture and Asian food and Asian cuisine, especially like if you look at, um, I think it was Bon Appetit Mag. Like even if you look at their Instagram, you see a lot of like posts that are are very um, Asian inspired and beautiful, and like they're using flavors that are wow, you know, something that I thought only an Asian kitchen would use. Mm-hmm. And it's all been very respectful and beautiful mm-hmm. that it's made. Um, I also know a lot of like food writers and bloggers and people who are, you know, part of Eater or part of the Kitchen or part of New York Times. Like they're all part. Of, they're all AAPI mm-hmm. um, authors and and food content creators. So I feel like the representation has has um, grown, and I'm very very happy about that. You know, I, I see a lot more acceptance, like even during Lunar New Year or Mid-Autumn Festival, mm-hmm. you see recipes on the New York Times for mooncakes. Oh. You see a lot of milk bread recipes, which I'm so happy about. Like, you know, King Arthur Baking is so proud of their, you know, milk bread recipes, the Tanjong, the Yudain methods. And, you know, um, so I feel like it's gotten so much better versus like when maybe I was growing up in the 90s, mm-hmm. when you only saw maybe one or two Asian faces right, who represent, you know, all, all of the Asians in America. So we had Martin Yang. Do you know Martin Yang? Chef Martin Yang. <laughs> he had a show called Yang Can Cook. And he would make like scallion pancakes. And he would be like, you know, someone's Asian uncle. It was so nice to see him, especially when I was growing up. I was like, hey, look, you know, someone who looks like me is on TV. Maybe that could be me eventually, you know. But I'd tell my, my mom about it. I was like, you know, I want to be in media. I want to be you know, go to Hong Kong TVB and, and she'll always tell me, you know, you don't have to look for it. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah, so, uh, that, that's a funny thing. But right now, as of today, I feel it's gotten so much better. And that's how, you know, I'm able to grow a group too. Just, there's so many more people are interested in like, baking and cooking the Asian way, right? Mm-hmm. The Asian flavors, like sriracha, gochujang, miso people are putting soy sauce in their brownies you know mm-hmm. and so far if everyone wants to, to try ube everyone's interested in pandan and it's not just matcha anymore and then it's not just boba anymore so mm-hmm. um that's a great question and i think we're we're on the rise of popularity and representation and i'm very very happy about it yeah that's amazing i think it's becoming quite popular in australia as well as we see that um What's what's the I was going to ask you what was what's like a, is there a food cooking sort of competition in US as well? Um, we have Master Chef and I don't know what what else do we have in Australia, Jess? Because I haven't been watching mainstream mm. TV for a long time. I feel I, like there would be more in the states, right, Cap? Yeah. Is um Zumbo's just desserts? Was that on Australia? Oh yes, yes, oh, yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. So you have Catherine Zhang. She was the champion of season two. And oh. she's Asian, so uh-huh. amazing. Um, we have Nailed It here. It's very funny. <laughs> have you heard of Nailed It on Netflix? Yeah, I think it's like a show that they're trying to replicate something, but it doesn't come out as nice. Or something like <laughs> My kids watched a couple of times. Yeah. And then there's uh, the School of Chocolate or the Chocolate School. I, I'm oh, yeah. butching it up, something like that. And then we also have Master Chef. And then I always um, we have Food Network. We have a lot of food shows. And then I also see a lot of Asian representation too. There's um, a recent show where uh, <clears throat> one of the judges is uh, Joang 
I think her name is Joanne Joanne Chang. Mm-hmm. Joanne Chang. She's one of the um the the judges of the show. Um, so yeah, a lot of representation now in in the food shows too. Again, something to be happy about. Mm-hmm, definitely, mm. yeah, 100%. Um, I know that you've been, while working with the um, Subtle Asian Baking and you have the sense of activism, like presenting ourselves as Asians in the space of a very, like before in a very white predominant space, um, how do you feel about food appropriation? Because this is something that or cultural appropriation through food. This is something Jess and I always spoke about on our podcast in our previous episodes um, because we did get some um, overseas listeners, not so much in Australia because I think Australia is still a very young country in regarding talking about appropriation because not a lot of people are seeing it. But I'm getting DMs from our listeners telling me what's happened in UK. You know, they don't see that as appropriate. Can we talk about it? What about in US? What do you think about cultural appropriation? Have you ever seen it happen around your environment? I think people are much more sensitive about it these days and trying to be more respectful, you know, to a point where there's a bit of fear, like, can I use that? Or can I talk about that? Or is that even appropriate? I mean, even some people would say, you know, subtle Asian baking, is that just for Asian bakers? And Mm -hmm. I like to tell people, no, it's a very diverse and inclusive group. So you don't Mm -hmm. have to be Asian to apply appreciate and learn to bake the Asian way, right? Mm -hmm. At the same time, appropriation has happened for decades. And I know till today, it's still happening. Um, Quite recently, I think it was a year or two back, there was, you know, a restaurant in New York City called Lucky Lee's, right? Mm -hmm. And Lucky Lee's was Mm -hmm. not opened by someone who was Asian. You know, there was this woman who opened this restaurant and claimed that her Chinese food was, you know, new and fresh and healthier than, you know, the Mm. Chinese food that you find in Chinese takeouts and Chinese restaurants. And I I feel that's always been that story where people spin and say that, you know, Asian food is dirty and not Mm. cheap, you know, a bowl of pho and a bowl of ramen should not cost as much as spaghetti or pasta. Right. So that I feel is appropriation, right? You, Mm -hmm. you say you're making Chinese food, right? Then you're profiting from it. You're, you know, being a little disrespectful to our culture and our stories. You know, you don't have the story of your grandma making you authentic Chinese food, right? And still, if you appreciate it, it's all okay. But just saying that your food is better than the traditional food, the real authentic Chinese food, you know, that rubbed people off the wrong way. Mm-hmm. And then profiting out of it and then not like, you know, giving back to to like um, fundraisers that help, you know, poor Asians in, in America or like, you know, understand more of Asian culture and what we go through in America and things like mm-hmm. that. I feel that's all part of, you know, appropriation. Same as it was this... Um, I think they're still around. They made mahjong. They made a mahjong line. They're called mahjong line. (laughs) They made mahjong that they said is much better or cooler. And Mm -hmm. they changed all of the tiles and the designs of it. And then they try to spin it and say they were right and not really listening to why people were hurt by it. Mm -hmm. You know, that's appropriation, right? Versus now, if you see people putting like miso and soy sauce and and like making that into their brownies i feel that's a a nice appreciation of the food and the and you know the fusion of it you know the appreciation of it 
But at the same time, you also see a lot of people saying, like, oh, that's yucky, that's disgusting, your food is rancid or moldy and things like that. You know, we, we always have, we always have like, you know, have to be a little bit more patient nowadays, right? Mm -hmm. There's growing love for our cuisine, the fusion, our ingredients and our flavors. There's still always going to be people who don't accept it. And there's always still going to be people who still need to be educated and they're going to continue to appropriate the culture until they learn. You know, they have to be open to learning and listening to us and our stories and, you know, being more respectful, right? That That's all there is to it. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, speaking of like the culture differences and, you know, the, you know, the what's happening that we had the last two years of pandemic, I know, uh, I understand that you have, uh, sort of like the activism against the, the with uh, for the anti-Asian hate event, we've um, kind of have a kind of the movement in Australia as well. You started like a Bake Off fundraising uh, events. Can you tell us how do people participate and how did that? How does that go? Yeah, so it started last year in twenty twenty one. Um, where, you know, we were starting to hear a lot more hate crimes were going on against Asian Americans, against Asians in Canada, I mean, I'm sure in, in Australia as well, and then across all of the world. So we, we banded together as a group of bakers from Subtle Asian Baking. And then, you know, it's not collective in one spot. We have bakers from all around the world. And everyone was told, you know, let's start doing bake sales. Right. Like what people are doing now for Ukraine, like these huge emergency bake sales mm -hmm. to raise funds for Ukraine. Right. So we did that last year. Um, we raised collectively $15,000 and we gave 5000 to a, um, a bakery called Double Crispy that I talked about earlier. Um, and then that helped them buy, you know, and make custom mooncake boxes so that they could sell their mooncakes during mid-autumn festival for much needed sales because sales have been down during the pandemic. And then $10,000 went to the longevity fund, which uh, provided a thousand hot meals to older adults and, you know, food poor neighbors in New York City, Chinatown. Um, so, you know, that gave us so much purpose and love and it brought the community together. So many people were you know, making, making meringue cookies, like um, Jenny of flour and stuff. She's making meringue cookies again this year, selling them nationwide, $20 a jar, and then donating all the proceeds to the bake sale, right? Bake sale fundraiser. Um, so this year, it's called the Very Asian Fundraiser. Mm -hmm. We recently just got an article out on um, Eater Seattle. It was just right two minutes before this podcast <laughs> is being recorded. You know, the reporter just sent me the article. I'm like, I need to do a podcast first, then I'll read the article. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so this year it's at GoFundMe. If you search for hashtag Very Asian Fundraiser, you'll be able to find it. Or you can search hashtag Very Asian um, Bake Sale. I also am doing a bake sale myself locally. So just for the Renton Seattle folks. Um, so I'm going to do like fast cheesecakes and Japanese cheesecakes. So six inches, eight inches um, for $35 or $50. All of the proceeds will go to the fundraiser. This year we're raising funds for Heart of Dinner. And then also um, half for the Very Asian Foundation founded by Michelle Lee. 
That's amazing. I've seen the clips on, like, I follow Michelle Lee on Instagram, and she's very vocal about, um, you know, saying things that we should be proud of our identity, we should be proud of our culture, even though that we're in a very white predominant country. But yeah, it's just amazing, incredible things that you do. Um, so apart from that, I know that there's a book coming now as well. Like, Gosh, how, how much things are you doing? <laughs> yeah, it's extraordinary. Tell us about yeah. yeah, tell us about that book, Kat. Yeah, I, I'd love to, Helen. Um, look, listen, it's uh, what it is is that you know now that you're, I'm, I'm my own girl boss, right? I feel like I make myself work very hard, right? So I actually work from the moment I wake up to the moment I sleep. So it's from seven all the way to maybe one a.m. Right, seven a.m. to one a.m. And that's how you get to get do things, um, get things done, right? Because you have a purpose every day. You wake up and you're like, oh, today I'm gonna help fundraise. Today I'm gonna, you know, be open about bullying online. You know, today I'm gonna write another cookbook. <laughs> things like that. Versus when you're at a nine to five, you're very. I feel you're stifled by, you know, what your employee um, employee wants you to do, right? So I, I feel that's how I'm able to do so much nowadays, and I'm so happy and grateful for it. At the same time, I had to have had that stable career to be able to do what I'm doing now because, you know, this is not something that I'm making money off of. I'm just giving it back to the communities over and over and over again, right? So, <laughs> um, but on to the book. Thank you so much. Sometimes I don't want to talk so much about myself and, and what I've made, but I am super proud of this book. There hasn't been a general Asian baking cookbook that's been out for many, many years now. Um, and as as you may may know, a lot of you know Asian cuisine cookbooks on the shelves in the past years may not have been written by an Asian. Mm -hmm. And if it's written respectfully, you know, it's appreciating culture, completely okay. But what I wanted to say is that there hasn't been a lot of representation until recent years of women of color. You know, people mm -hmm. like myself. Asian women authors on the bookshelves. You know, we actually have to fight for these spaces. But as of recent years, there's been a lot more interest, like we mentioned earlier, in Asian cookbooks and Asian baking books. So very, very timely. Um, my cookbook is called Modern Asian Baking at Home. It has recipes that are inspired by the subtle Asian community, Asian baking community. So recipes that um, I adapted and were inspired by from my community in the Facebook group. So um, we're all about crowdsourced recipes, right? Mm -hmm. But none of it is like, you know, word for word. So if I found a recipe that I was very inspired by off of subtle Asian baking, I would test it, put my own spin to it and rewrite the entire recipe. So 68 amazing recipes in the book. Um, it's coming out June 28th. All of this month of March, I am donating 100% of my author net proceeds to help stop Asian hate. So to my um, the, to this very Asian fundraiser and also to help the people of Ukraine. So pre-orders are super, super important. You know, the, the book doesn't come out until June 28th. Pre-orders are available right now. And why I say pre-orders are important it's because it shows, you know, bookstores and it shows my publisher that my book has demand, yep, yep. which means they will order the book. So then, you know, let's say you want to, to like, Jess, you want the book on the day of release, mm. right? Mm. Imagine there were no pre-orders. You might not get that book because the bookstore that you ordered from saw that there was no demand. They didn't order the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. And then if they see like, hey, oh, Ken, you're not getting any pre-orders in. They're not going to help me market my book. They're not going to send that like, you know, influencer packages for the influencers that I want, you know, to talk about my book and things. They're not going to put me on marketing on Amazon, things like that. So pre-orders are super, super, super important. And um, if you want to support this very Asian female author right here, please, please go and pre-order my book. Mm -hmm. Totally. We will do that right now. We'll do that, Yeah. Absolutely. I think it's really important to support, you know, Asian women in publishing industry. Uh, and also just to show by the food culture, you know, it's not something that we grew up with. And I do hope that our children grow up seeing more representations of Asians, you know, in everywhere, not just in the food industry, but in publishing industry, you know, on social media as well, because this is how we normalized you know how our existence yeah yeah in the world definitely yeah it's so so amazing the things that you do is just um just so i don't know any other words to describe <laughs> you it's just so incredible the things that you're doing right now yeah thank you so much and another another thing about that too is that when i was writing this book and proposing it to my publisher i also had to find similar books for it and there were not a yeah. lot of Asian baking books that I could say that was a competitor of this book, mm -hmm. which also is a double edged sword, which means the publisher would think, you know, if there hasn't been books like it before, would this book succeed? Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. Yeah. so now that there's a modern Asian baking at home, Asian baking cookbook out there, you're going to see a lot more of these kind of books moving mm. forward, right? Our children will see it and it'll yeah. be normalized. You know, our food is no longer yucky. It's mm -hmm. something to be appreciated. It's something to be admired. And then children growing up, they don't have to think, you know, my parents only want me to be in medical field, financial field. You know, they could be cookbook writers. They could be mm -hmm. food writers. You know, they could be someone in a creative field as well. Yeah, definitely. You're the pioneer, you know, that you're for the brilliant work that you're doing. One yeah. of them, one of them. There's so many now, so I'm so proud of everyone. <laughs> yeah. Um, Jess, do you have any other questions? I think Kat, I'm most I'm just have one kind of question that I've been thinking about. Um so I bake also a lot, but like I never have enough people to eat them because a lot of my <laughs> friends just don't like sweets. So like well, how do you do it, Kat? Like what do you do with a lot of stuff after you bake them and like you don't you you like don't want to go to waste what do you do yeah so i i, I think i'm very very lucky so when we moved here to um, the renton washington area we knew nobody we had no family here no friends right so 2017 we came to a completely new neighborhood so everyone was a new neighbor we didn't know each other and then you know, we thought, okay, we need to make friends. So <laughs> we forgot about the Seattle freeze that people talk about. They say, you know, Seattle people are not friendly. It's not true. You know, you yeah. just have to keep feeding them and then they'll become your friends. And that's exactly what I did. Just like in a Harvest Moon game. I'm not sure if you played that game or like Stardew Valley, you know, those kind of games where you keep giving people food and presents and they start to like you. So that's exactly yeah. what I did. I just gave all my food that I was making to all of my neighbors. And then now they're all my friends. And then whenever I bake something for Instagram or um, TikTok, if my mom and my, my son and my husband can't eat all of it, I always have down the block, there's families that love my bread. So they, they always take the food. <laughs> I love that. That's great. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, is that our final question? Do you have any other? Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much, Kay. Um, we're so looking forward to your book. Um, I think once we jump off, we're going to pre-order. Oh, yeah. Oh, thank you, ladies. And thanks again for coming to our podcast. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. So that's the end of our episode today. Thanks again to Kay Lu from Subtle Asian Baking speaking with us today. It was such a pleasure to chat to Kay. We will be continuing to support her great course and share on our social media platforms. Please do check out our show notes for the lovely recommendations from Kate and get to her to pre-order Kate's book, Modern Asian Baking. We have always said that baking is very therapeutical, therefore we encourage everyone to give a try. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Google and Apple and give us a 5 star rating. We welcome listeners to send us your feedback so any topics you would like us to explore. See our updates on our socials and make sure you share with your friends to help us to extend the visibility of Asian Beaches Down Under. And let's continue the intersectionality in the podcast industry. So stay safe, everyone, and we'll talk to you next time.